Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. On Monday, September 21st, the United Nations officially commemorated its 75th anniversary. The centerpiece of this commemoration is a declaration from all 193 member states of the United Nations that reaffirms their commitment to international cooperation to advance peace and security, human rights, and development. In addition to this official commemoration among governments, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres also released the results of a massive survey in which the UN asked people around the world to weigh in on their priorities for international cooperation and beyond. The 75th anniversary of the UN provides a good opportunity to reflect on the changing role of the United Nations and of multilateralism more broadly in international relations. That this anniversary is happening in the middle of a pandemic in which a common disease is impacting every corner of the globe makes this an even more salient moment to discuss the role of the United Nations in international affairs today. To that end, I am very pleased to have on the line with me today Ambassador Elizabeth Cousins. She is the President and CEO of the United Nations Foundation and previously served as a top diplomat at the United States Mission to the United Nations. We kick off discussing the significance of the UN 75 Declaration and the results of that massive global survey before having a broader conversation about the role of the United Nations in particular and multilateralism in general in international relations today. It's always great to chat with Ambassador Elizabeth Cousins. I think you'll appreciate this episode. And a big thank you to Ambassador Elizabeth Cousins for just being available ahead of a very busy UN week. So thank you. And as always, feel free to reach out to me if there is anything on your mind. If you have suggestions of people you'd like me to interview or topics you'd like me to cover, I do love hearing from you. You can reach out to me using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com or find me on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. All right, now here is my conversation with Ambassador Elizabeth Cousins. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So the political declaration, which is the declaration on the 75th anniversary of the UN, is a a really important document. And first, I want to encourage all of your listeners to read it. 
It's very short, it's accessible, and its message is really clear. It basically says, in 2020, it is in on the 75th anniversary of this historic institution, it is in every country's interest to strengthen international cooperation for the sake of their own citizens. That, that we, the peoples, that, uh, that is invoked so often from the opening language of the UN Charter and for future generations. And it very clearly lays out 12 areas where international unity is essential, from peace and security to climate change to harnessing technology, not for disruption, but for good. Uh, and it and it doesn't mince words. It says, and I'll quote from it, what we agree today will affect the sustainability of our planet as well as the welfare of generations for decades to come. And I think if you look around you and anybody reads the papers or listens to the news, who could possibly doubt that as we watch millions of acres on the West Coast burn? You know, as we hit nearly a million deaths from COVID-19. You know, just this week, we had the American head of the World Food Program feel compelled to take to the air to appeal to the world's billionaires to step up to save 30 million people from dying this year of hunger. I mean, this is a world where we're on a brink. And I think everyone recognizes that. And it's a brink we don't have to cross. And this declaration essentially names that challenge as well as that opportunity and puts it out there in three pages. So as you know, this document says all the right things, but to what extent do you expect those you know words on the page to translate into meaningful action on the part of world leaders? First of all, there's been a growing recognition among diplomats from many places that the value and relevance of what gets done in a body like the UN has to ultimately mean something directly to people's citizens, to their taxpayers, to people in, you know, in communities around the world. So there's been a bit of a of a consistent push over the last several years to try to produce declarations or agreements that actually people can read and understand and it makes sense. So first, I think you see in this, like you did in um, in some of the some of the outcomes around the sustainable development goals or even the millennium development goals, trying to speak to people in a way that is just about common sense and and issues that have meaning and value to people. And I should say, just to emphasize the point, if you actually read the document, it's not written in UN speak. It's written in you know, real people language. Absolutely. I think the only acronym is actually COVID, <laughs> as far as I could tell. So, you know, that that's saying something. Um, and, and again, you know, it's harder to write short than to write long as, you know, everybody knows who's ever written a long paper. So, so getting it into three pages and distilling the kind of fundamentals, I think they tried really hard and that's a lot of the artistry of, of the negotiation. Um, I think, you know, there are high politics at work in all of this. This is an incredibly fraught time in the world and, uh, no one's blind to the divisions in the world and just the stakes on all the issues that, that people are struggling with, whether it's COVID or it's racism or it's climate change. And so all of that is, you know, is infusing the negotiations with a lot of, a lot of gravity, a lot of, a lot of weight and consequence and language matters. You know, different words have, 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 have meaning to different constituencies and audiences. So a lot of times negotiations end up playing around, around some of that as well as just the, the kind of underlying substance. It was a tough one, but, but, they, but, they, but they pulled out an agreement that I think, honestly, the people involved should feel proud of. Uh, so in addition to the high-level diplomacy that went into the crafting of this document, there's also been this broader effort at the UN 
to survey as many people around the world in as many languages as possible to get broad feedback from a diverse array of constituencies about their concerns, about the kind of future they want for themselves and their families and their children. Uh, It seems as if it was just a massive undertaking. Can you just describe what that process involved? And what was the intention behind the process? No, happy to describe it. So uh, in the on the eve of the UN 75th birthday, the Secretary General was really clear. He said, I don't want a big birthday celebration. I don't want to celebrate all of whatever we believe our successes to have been over 75 years, and good people can disagree what those were or weren't. He said, I want to use this this moment as a time to genuinely listen to people, to go out to as many people around the world from every country, from every walk of life, and genuinely ask them, what do they want for their future? What are their hopes? What are their fears? What are their deepest needs? And what do they need from the UN? What do they want the UN to be? And he was very clear in public and with the team that was involved with putting this effort together, with whom we were pretty closely involved. He he wanted honest answers. He didn't want sugar-coated answers. So he wanted to use tools and techniques that would genuinely surface a more uh, a more direct um, set of responses from people from a lot of different contexts. So they used a whole suite of tools. It was a really impressive, intensive several months of effort where there were dialogue groups, focus groups, surveys, polling, data analytics. They used a lot of different uh, tools and instruments to try to capture as much sentiment and opinion as they could from as wide a spectrum of people as possible. They managed to do some form of dialogue and survey in every country in the world. There was a particular interest in reaching out to young people. I think because of the the SG has a, a deep personal conviction, uh, and I think many of us share this, that you know, ultimately the choices we make are about the legacy we leave to young people. And, you know, we're, we're, we're in a world where a lot of the world's population is young and they see a future and the future looks pretty scary in a lot of respects. So, so how can we speak to them, engage them, give them a real opportunity for voice? And that's what this whole process was about. Um, and, and the data is really interesting. You might actually want to do a show just on that because. Well, well, can you talk me through some of the top line findings? Yeah. So on the top line, I mean, the first is that vast majority of people around the world, 90% believe that global cooperation is essential to tackling global challenges. And that has just put been put in high relief by the pandemic, because many of them also said that COVID-19 has only reinforced that view, that we need global cooperation to be able to solve a challenge like that. And it's not the only one like that. You know, second, Three quarters of the people surveyed said they saw the UN as essential to tackling those challenges. Um, They were also very clear on what they're worried about. I mean, COVID-19 was huge, needless to say. And within that, a particular concern about equity, about populations uh, and people that are on the most vulnerable side of the spectrum in whatever uh, communities they leave and people that are hard lived and people that are hardest hit. Not a a far second when people were asked about their biggest long-term concern was climate change. Climate and the state of the planet topped the list for everybody as an acute and immediate issue as well as a long-term issue. 
Um, but to say, as much as people said they want global cooperation and they believe the UN has a has a powerful and important role, they were also not sparing in their in their criticism. And so, you know, a number of people and and a majority of people said that as much as they want the UN to have a role, some of them felt the UN was more remote from their lives or they didn't fully understand what the UN was doing. And so one big lesson, I think, for the UN taking uh, away from this process is that they're looking at new ways to communicate, new ways to engage people more directly. And, you know, I think one way to look at this whole exercise is that this, in a way, is a bit of a down payment on a next generation of UN engagement with a broader spectrum of, uh, uh, of constituencies and people. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because I was going to ask you what tangible ways do you think that this survey will inform how the UN sort of operates in the near future? Well, I think the SG, and not to put overly on him, but he has been a voice from the beginning of his tenure calling for a more inclusive form of multilateralism is the way he phrases it, by which he means reaching out to a much more diverse spectrum of constituencies and voices, and then finding the instruments to be able to make that not just a listening, but actually a learning and an adapting and a responding more to some of those constituents. So there are a lot of interesting ideas that are out there. That's one of the things the UN was also asking people, what are your ideas for how we can improve? And so a lot of that will be in the next year of work, honestly, coming out of the adoption of this declaration uh, and thinking about what what the year ahead holds in terms of ways that the UN can innovate the way it does its basic business. So the first UNGA that I covered was the 60th anniversary of the UN in 2005. And that was another anniversary pegged UNGA, and it resulted in some real substantive changes at the UN. It was the UNGA in which the responsibility to protect was enshrined in UN doctrine, and the uh, Human Rights Council was created to replace the old discredited Commission on Human Rights. And then 10 years after that, the 70th anniversary of the UN gave us the Sustainable Development Goals, which I know you are very deeply involved in negotiating as a top U.S. diplomat at the U.S. mission to the UN in charge of negotiating the SDGs. So I'm curious to get your perspective, your your take on how those two big moments for multilateralism compared to this one. That is such a great question. Um, and uh, I was very involved in that period too, Mark. So I, I, and I remember that moment in many ways as a, it was kind of a high watermark, even though it was a very divisive time in its own way. Um, mm -hmm. Back in 2005, it was a bit of a high watermark of countries coming together to try to embark on genuine reforms that they thought would put the multilateral order in a more constructive place for, for reaching a whole series of objectives. Were we um, at the U.S. mission back then as well? No, 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 I was not. Okay. I was, um, I had been in and out of the U.N. system in my career. Mm. At that point, I was at a think tank that works really closely with, uh, with uh -huh. still with the U.N. system. And we were very involved in almost like a second track process of uh, work around some of the issues that were up for negotiation. So mm. You know, everything from actually global health security to uh, to mediation and peace processes to the responsibility to protect all those issues that were really in the ether at the uh, at the time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so that was one moment in time when, you know, you think about the divisions then. 
But there was a critical difference between then and now, and I'll come back to 2015 maybe as a for some concluding thoughts in between, because I think that holds some seeds for the future. But if you compare 2005 to now, as divided as it was in 2005, there was still a deep underlying and pretty broad-based constituency who felt that the division, the big division at the time was over the war in Iraq, as everybody will remember, one of the biggest, that that it was more important to find a way to repair that division and find a way to move forward together, that that was one of the fundamental purposes of that whole reform agenda, additional to all the specific reforms that were on the table on human rights or Mm. on peace and security and so on. I think today, that's one of the questions we all have is where is that base coalition, the, the, the breadth of that coalition that believes that, um, strengthening the system for everybody's collective interests is actually of of significant importance. I think what you see in the declaration that has just been agreed um, is a very strong base of support, but there are also more contending forces in the opposite direction. And so that really that really makes this moment in time of exceptional importance and also of exceptional risk. So now I want to come to 2015 because you asked me about the SDGs and that moment I think in the SDG process, we had a window into what a revitalized multilateralism could look like. And I'm just going to give you a, a snippet of an example. I'll take, I'll give, use the example of one of the goals that was the most contentious at the time, which was whether to have a goal on peace and governance at the heart of a development agenda. This is the goal 16 that some people may know about that we eventually got. The United States cared enormously about getting this. The United Kingdom cared enormously about getting it. Many countries wanted this. But what got that goal at the end of the day was not the United States or the European Union or any number of other countries who had been advocating for something similar for a long time. What got that goal was that smaller countries, and in particular countries that had been through searing civil wars and the the struggling processes of recovery, countries like Liberia, Sierra Leone, Timor-Leste, because of the nature of that negotiation, they had a a more level playing field at which to articulate their interests and needs. And they showed leadership in a way that was just extraordinary. And the reason we got that goal was because they were such powerful advocates for their own interests, for the broader value that could come from having something like a goal on peace and and governance at the heart of a development agenda. And it was just a window into what can happen when you enable countries, small and large, everything in between, to be able to say what matters to them, to have tough fights about it, but then to find arenas for common ground. And you emerge with to my mind, an incredibly powerful agenda for change and transformation in a lot of countries, including this one, around questions about justice, peace, and governance. Uh, do you think it's like the the geopolitics of today that is making this moment perhaps less conducive to the kind of big breakthroughs like uh, of the kind you were able to secure back in 2015? Yeah, look, I think we're it's it's clear that the geopolitics today, the environment, is more disruptive and it's more challenging. And we feel like we're really in an interregnum in the world because so much is changing. And and some of that's not about geopolitics. Some of that's about technology. Some of it's about demographic change. It's about all kinds of pressures that are kind of surging in at the same time. And of course, then we have a once in a century pandemic on top of all of it. 
But we do have really challenging geopolitics. Um, some of that's producing or being produced by populist dynamics in countries. We have China rising in its power and assertion on the world stage in a new way. You know, a country like Russia has is changing the way it's playing its hand compared to five years ago. And you have a United States that, of course, was not only present at the creation of this entire system, but it essentially underwrote the entire system and shaped the rules of the game, starting to take itself off of the field. So that changes the dynamics dramatically. And it's, you know, it's why partly, you know, in my view, this was not the year or the moment to push for a big grand new deal around what multilateralism looks like in the future. This was a year to hold ground. It was a year to secure cooperation where it's possible. And obviously, it's also a year to focus on the day-to-day emergency that is so top of mind for every citizen in every country, which is COVID-19 and the recovery from all of its myriad effects. So, you know, with all that in mind, I do think the the declaration that we started this conversation with is actually um, a pretty masterful document and gives us a really solid and strong point of departure for all of the things we need to do next. So I'm glad you brought the conversation to COVID-19 because, you know, it does seem that this moment is very much a stress test for the international system. And I'm curious to learn from you what you think COVID-19 has revealed about the weaknesses of the UN, the strengths of the UN, and, uh, you know, about the international system more broadly. So COVID-19 is shining a light directly on the fundamental question about whether we can unify as a world to come together against a threat like a global pandemic or whether we will, we will be divided in response to it. We will only prevail over this pandemic if we are united. I'm absolutely convinced of that. And this isn't the last such challenge that will require that level of collective unity. The climate emergency is right there with us too. But that is the fundamental question of our of our times. And it's and it's one that is up for grabs. So when I talk to student groups or talk to business leaders or am just talking to people who are thinking about, you know, the politics of our time and the stake we all have in the outcome, it is so crucial that we find a way to make that case and build those bridges because, you know, it really will it will determine whether we succeed or fail our ability, our ability to cooperate um, around these most common of, of threats and challenges. So it also does seem that just the urgency of COVID-19 has given rise to new forms of international cooperation that I wouldn't have even thought are possible just a few years ago. And, you know, and some of these are adjacent to or peripheral to the UN. Uh, and I'm thinking about, for example, like the COVAX facility to develop a COVID-19 vaccine, and then the access to COVID-19 tools accelerator, the ACT accelerator, uh, which, you know, is a World Health Organization organized effort that involves a number of different global health organizations. Absolutely. And and that's a that's a, a type of the innovation that we need in the multilateral arena to solve the kind of challenges before us. This access to COVID tools accelerator that you mentioned is a is a great thing to watch. It came together on a dime. It brings together the kind of titans in the field of global public health. So the World Health Organization at the apex of it, uh, the Gavi, the Global Fund, um, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, major philanthropies, 
anyone who has competencies and capabilities that are relevant to this fight are coming together under that umbrella to try to figure out how do they harness their respective competencies and resources in a way that can really take this on and succeed. It's really worth watching. People are throwing themselves into it with exactly the kind of energy that you'd want uh, and expect. And I think there is, is something important that we will learn from this exercise. Um, I'll use another example, um, which is very close to my heart, which is the COVID-19 Solidarity Response Fund, mm -hmm. which you may know is something the UN Foundation with a number of philanthropic partners put together to try to create a, a, a way for anyone who wanted to contribute financially to the World Health Organization's COVID work to be able to do so. And when we put this together in March, we thought maybe we'd be lucky if we raised $50 million. We've raised over 230 in just a handful of months. And the best part of it is that we've raised it from, uh, from over 100 countries, over 100 companies, from almost 600,000 people around the world who have given in any number of ways, just however they feel they can, contributing to what to date is still the world's largest single donor to the World Health Organization's COVID response. So just think about that. It's 600,000 people from over 100 countries who are managing to have that kind of consequence and just material impact on COVID response. The reason that WHO was able to start doing some of its earliest procurement of personal protective equipment was because of those people. So that's just an example of any number of ways that there is so much potential to develop new instruments and platforms to solve problems and to do it in a way that reinforces both unity and solidarity. And finally, bringing us back to the political declaration that we started this conversation on, what will you be looking towards in the coming years and months uh, that will suggest to you whether or not governments and other entities, even the UN itself, is living up to the promises that were made in that declaration? Yeah, well, I think one of the answers is that we all have to hold leaders to the commitments in that declaration and to the spirit behind it. And that's something that's on all of us, whatever country we live in, on whatever kind of levers we have. Um, but second, to my mind, first, it's COVID and, the, and coming through this pandemic in a way that is just and sustainable. You know, we're, we're barely at the end of the beginning of this crisis. We're not yet at the beginning of the end. And this will take stamina and it will take determination. And so one giant litmus test of our ability to cooperate is simply how we get through this still, because there is still quite a lot of work ahead. The second giant one is climate change and the climate emergency. You know, it is now, I think, becoming increasingly evident to most people around the world that the climate emergency is not about the future, it's about today. And we are seeing a much more rapid uh, pace of climate impacts than scientists even predicted barely a year ago. And we have got to take this on with the heroic imagination that people have taken on things like world wars, that people have taken on on massive collective challenges that really do unite us more in, in more ways than we can count. And we have so much promise, Mark, when you think about the future. Um, 
you know, we just declared an end to wild polio virus in Africa just a few weeks ago. That's an incredible accomplishment. You think about, we defeated smallpox <laughs> quite some time ago. And when you look at the promise of new technologies to make people's lives better and fairer, it's dizzying when you think about the possibilities. But we're at this pivot point historically where we can have that future or we can have a very different and darker one. And it is so crucial that we find the, like I say, the imagination, the 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 spirit of solidarity and the political leadership to be able to move into the first future rather than the second. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. This is great. Well, thank you, Mark. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and uh, love your show. And you have a big fan base in our house, needless uh, to say. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Elizabeth Cousins. That was great. Um, and I will, of course, post a link to both the declaration and the survey results on globaldispatchespodcast.com and in the show notes of this episode. Thank you. We'll see you next time. Bye.